0: please take your bibles turn with me to the book of 2 Kings chapter 2 2 Kings chapter 2 If you were with us last summer uh, you remember perhaps that we worked our way through the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah well this morning we push pause in our series of Luke, in Luke's gospel and begin a new series uh, through the life and ministry of Elijah's successor Elisha as we were telling the children this morning Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 15 that the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament uh, are also breathed out by God. They have been written down for our instruction, Paul says, upon whom the ends of the ages have come so that uh, through the scriptures and and through endurance and faith in God's word, we might have hope. Uh, Paul tells us there in 2 Timothy 3 that these sacred writings in the Old Testament right, are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so here at Pear Orchard, we do preach regularly through both the Old and the New Testament, right? We believe that the Old Testament as well uh, is God's Word. We believe that the whole of the Bible is one story, pointing us to God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so this morning we come uh, to the book of of 2 Kings, and it's appropriate before we read the text that we would remind ourselves where we are in that one story of grace. Think of, if you've ever seen the Star Wars movies, the beginning of those yellow scrolling words, that's sort of what you're about to get, right? Here's the the backstory. Here's the history before we jump into 2 Kings chapter 2. In 931 BC, King Solomon died. All right. After King Solomon dies, the northern tribes rebel against the rule of the Davidic kings. Okay? And Israel is divided north and south. The southern kingdom of Judah continued uh, to, to be ruled by David and his descendants, the descendants of David. But the northern kingdom is ruled by a succession of smaller dynasties. Uh, Jeroboam, the first king in the north, had rebelled against Jerusalem, but, but ultimately had rebelled against the Lord. He sets up worship sanctuaries, worship centers in, in these two cities of Dan and Bethel, Dan in the north, Bethel in the south. Uh, and, and here he institutes new worship. Uh, he breaks the second commandment. He begins to worship the one true God uh, by way of these golden calves that he sets up. He institutes new priesthood. He institutes new feasts and festivals. Uh, and, and so every king after him continued in that second commandment violation. But eventually, right, that second commandment violation becomes a first commandment violation, right? All of a sudden, they're not just worshiping the one true God by images, now they're worshiping other gods, false gods. And so Ahab is the one who marries a Canaanite lady, he begins to worship Baal, the Canaanite God, and he, by marrying Jezebel, right, brings great wickedness to the people of God. So what does God do? God raises up Elijah to call the people of Israel to repentance of their idolatry. uh, And his ministry, as we saw last summer, is fruitful to some degree. Well, now we come to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're around the year 850 BC, right? So it's been about 80 years of idolatry in Israel. Ahab is dead. Jezebel is still alive. Their their sons are still reigning in the northern kingdom. Elijah's ministry has come to an end, and God is taking him up to heaven by a whirlwind. A ministry transition is happening. And so now we come to 2 Kings. I'm going to be reading, actually starting in verse 7, through the end of the chapter. Uh, You'll hear me say the word, Yahweh, instead of the word the Lord, whenever you see the Lord in all caps or small caps, that's the divine name. That's God's name, Yahweh, uh, that he's revealed to us in the scriptures. And so sometimes I'll be saying that in the sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and and read it that way uh, when we come to it in the text. So this is God's word, 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 7 through the end of the chapter. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went with Elijah and Elisha and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of Yahweh has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says Yahweh, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation of yourself. We thank you, O Lord, for how you teach us, how you reprove us, how you correct us, how you train us in righteousness by the scriptures. Lord, would you show us your son, Jesus Christ, in this passage? Lord, would you help us to know you better? You are our rock and our redeemer. Let all the meditations of our hearts, let the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. This past May... Some of you may remember that in a span of about six days, the PCA lost three giants of the faith, giants of our church. Two of them uh, you, you probably know, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and Harry Reeder, a pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. The third may not be as familiar to you, uh, Mr. Do- Mr. Dr. Steve Smallman. Uh, he was the pastor of McLean Presbyterian Church in, outside of Washington, D.C. for 30 years, and then he was the executive director uh, of Surge, World Harvest Missions. Uh, he uh, ministered faithfully. We actually use his red uh, communicant workbook, Understanding the Faith, in our communicants class. So all three of these men... Right, were, it had immense impact on the church of the PCA and on the kingdom of God at large. And now they're gone. They're no longer here on earth to minister among us. And so how does the church go on when it loses giants of the faith, like Tim Keller and Harry Reader and Steve Smallman? How do we move forward when those who have served so faithfully are no longer among us, when the Lord takes them from us? Well, that's the question that would have been facing the, the remnant believers of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah, the prophet who stood against Baal worship right, during Ahab's reign, has been removed from the battle fray. How is Israel going to fare now? How is Israel going to move forward to the Lord now? Well, of course, the answer is that God's work God's word, God's kingdom is never dependent upon any one person. God's workers come and go, but God's work continues on. Elijah is gone. But in our text this morning, God is confirming that he has appointed Elisha prophet in his place. Now, if you've ever had a a password on a website, you're familiar with two-factor authentication Right, well, Here in our passage, we have three-factor authentication. Right? God is giving us, through this text, this confirmation that his prophet Elisha has the same authority as his prophet Elijah. We see that in three ways. We see God tell us in this text that his word is a word of wisdom to be followed. His word is a word of grace to be trusted in. And his word is a word of judgment to be feared. Let's think about these three ways that God both confirms the authority of Elisha's word, but also teaches us about his word for us even this day. First, God tells us that his word is a word of wisdom to be followed. We read in verses seven to 14, how God took Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind east of the Jordan River. He was accompanied by chariots of fire, chariots of of, of these horses of fire. But notice that Elijah's cloak remained on earth. Elijah went up to heaven, but his cloak, his mantle remains on the earth. And so Elisha picks it up and he takes it back to the Jordan River where the sons of the prophets, these these groups of disciples that lived in various cities there in Israel and served the Lord and served the the, the main prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elisha brings Elijah's cloak back to the Jordan River and they see him, the sons of the prophets see him in Joshua-like fashion using the cloak, just like Elijah had done, right, to divide the waters of the Jordan River so that he can walk across on dry ground. They see Elisha do the exact same miracle that Elijah had done. And so you see in verse 15, they recognize that the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. By this miracle, he is accredited in their eyes. And so they bow down before him, this this ancient Near Eastern sign of respect, of, of recognition of authority. But notice that they aren't willing to submit fully, to his leadership, are they, right? For though they had seen that God's power was with Elisha as he did this miracle, they hadn't seen Elijah actually being taken away. And so verse five, five, though it tells us that they knew Elijah was going to be taken away, it seems maybe they had seen the whirlwind and the fire, they hadn't seen what was going on inside this whirlwind the way that Elisha had done. And so look what they say in verse 16. They ask Elisha if they can send out a search party to find Elijah. They say, it may be that the spirit of Yahweh has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. Maybe they thought that Elijah had had disappeared again as he was wont to do. Uh, maybe they thought that he really had died, but that his body was still on earth and they wanted to, to give him a proper burial. W- whatever reason, Elisha tells them, no, do not send out a search party. Right? Elisha knew that, that, that Elijah had been taken up into heaven the way that Enoch had been taken up into heaven. Right? Back in Genesis, the only two men who, who were removed from this earth without dying. Well, the sons of the prophets refused to listen to Elisha. They refused to heed his word they keep asking and asking, him, urging him, urging him to send out a search party until finally he is, the text says, ashamed, embarrassed. He's I'm not gonna refuse your request anymore. I'll let you go out with a search party. And so he lets them go out. And of course, after three days of looking for Elijah, they come back empty handed, they find nothing. And when they come back to Elisha, who's now at Jericho, he says, didn't I tell you not to go? Now, if you've ever uh, written an email or a text, you know how hard it is to communicate tone with a written word, right? So, so we don't know the tone in which Elisha spoke these words. We don't know if it was uh, right, a reproachful reprimand, did I not tell you? Or if it was a gentle admonition. We don't know the tone. But either way, right? Elisha's, I told you so, uh, is making a very clear point. Elisha has both God's power and God's wisdom. He knows what he is talking about. His word is to be heeded. It is to be followed. The prophets themselves, these sons of the prophets, they had, by their own experience, recognized and and seen that, that Elisha's word is authenticated. Elisha's word is confirmed. It is trustworthy. It is authoritative. It is a word to be followed. I wonder this morning, if you have a similar attitude, a similar approach to the word of God as these sons of the prophets. Perhaps you, you acknowledge the word of God and its authority, right? You bow down before it. But then I wonder, are you quick to, to push back against it when it cuts against the grain of, of what you want to do, how you want to live, how you want to think? These sons of the prophets, they were saying, you're our lead prophet. We bow down before you. But we think you're crazy not to let us go to look for Elijah. And so we can act the same way, can't we? The word of God is our only rule for faith and for practice, except when it tells us to believe something that we think is dumb, right? Or except when it's telling us to do something or not to do something that we really want to do or not do, right? God's word, he's telling us here, is his inerrant wisdom for our lives. Right? As God told Joshua, if we meditate on it day and night, if, we, if we're careful to do all that is written in it, and our way will be prosperous. We'll be walking in the way of wisdom. Look, honey may have the same viscosity as motor oil, but I bet your owner's manual in your car tells you to put motor oil and not honey, right? Why? Because they made the car, they know what's best. They have the wisdom to know how this car can work. In the same way, God's word, the owner's manual for our life here on earth, God knows how we are made, he has made us. God knows what we need to flourish. On this earth. And so God calls us to submit our lives to the wisdom He's revealed in His Word. God's Word is a word of wisdom to be followed. But secondly, we see and learn in this passage that God's Word is a word of grace to be trusted in. Elisha settles here in Jericho for some period of time. We don't know how long, but it's long enough for the people of the city to, to ask him to deal with a serious problem with the water supply there in Jericho. As you see in verse 19, the the city was in a good situation, right? The the city of Jericho was was called the City of Palms, and it wasn't for nothing, right? They were situated near the Jordan River. They were in this oasis-like region. Uh, The the land should have been very fruitful, right? It should have been uh, something that that was, uh, you know, great uh, abundance in the land. And yet they tell us that the water was bad and the land was unfruitful. No, that, that word unfruitful doesn't just refer to, to plants. It isn't saying like, hey, things aren't growing very well around here. Uh, it, it, the word could, could better be translated that the land was causing miscarriage, was causing barrenness. So it's far more serious than just unproductive land. You notice in verse 21, when Elisha talks about the waters uh, being healed, he says no more death, no more miscarriage. Right? The, the, this water was killing them. And so the the people bring their situation to Elisha. And what does he do? He asks them to bring him a new bowl with some salt in it. He takes that salt to the spring of water. He throws the salt into it and he declares, thus says Yahweh, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. The waters of death were healed. Even to the day when the book of Kings was written, which was during the time of, of the exile." In Babylon, in the 500s, centuries after these events happened, these waters of death were still healed, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Now, to understand the significance of this miracle, you have to remember the history of the city of Jericho. After Joshua fought, or rather didn't fight, right, the battle of Jericho, he puts the city under a curse. Back in the book of Joshua, he, he says, "Anyone who tries to refortify this city, to rebuild its walls and its gates, will lose his firstborn son and his youngest son." Well, in First Kings chapter sixteen, verse thirty-four, a man named Heel the Bethelite says to Ahab, "Here, hold my beer, right? I'm going to do exactly what God has said not to do." And so he refortifies the city at the cost of his firstborn son and his second-born, his youngest son. Jericho is under God's curse. Jericho, the city, and even this deadly water supply is a part of that curse. But here, through Elisha's word, what does God do? He brings healing and grace and life in the place of, of sickness and death. Again, God is accrediting Elisha as his prophet endowed with God's spirit and power. He's not just a new Elijah, he's a new Moses. You remember in Exodus chapter 15, uh, when the, the waters of Marah were bitter, and what does Moses do? He throws a tree into the waters, and they are healed, they are purified. Well, here the same thing happens, and, and God is saying to his people, look, I'm still speaking through Elisha, and my word to you is a word of grace, a word of healing to be trusted in. And all who trust in it receive that grace. You see the the trust and the faith, don't you, of the people of Jericho when they obey Elisha's word to to bring this new bowl with salt in it. Notice it's not the salt that causes the healing. Elisha tells us, Yahweh, the Lord, heals the waters through Elisha's word. But the salt was a visible sign of the healing. Why salt? Well, several times in the Bible, uh, the, the salt... Is used in relation to God's covenants. In fact, God's covenants are called covenants of salt. Every time the Israelites were to bring an animal sacrifice, they were to offer salt with that sacrifice, Leviticus tells us. Salt was a natural preservative, it, it, it kept food from corruption and, and from rottenness and from decomposition. It points to the incorruptibility the permanent nature of God's covenant of grace. It points to God's covenant faithfulness, to his preserving grace. And here, it also seems to point to the power of God's word to purify, to preserve life, to destroy death. So what's happening in this miracle is huge. Elisha is God's instrument to bring transformation, to bring life where there was only death, to bring blessing where there was a curse. A new day is dawning through Elisha's ministry. The people of Elisha's day who saw this miracle, who heard about this miracle, should have learned that there was still a God in Israel, Yahweh, and that Elisha was his prophet. Yahweh was God, not Baal. Baal is the God of fertility in Canaan, but Baal couldn't even heal waters. But God, through Elisha, brings life and blessing to the curse. God's word through God's servant brings God's transforming grace to God's people. If they had ears to hear, if they would trust in God's promises, they would see that God's intention was to do them good, to bind up their brokenness, to bring blessing in place of curse, to heal their diseases, to love them freely. His grace was more powerful Than the curse was for those who trusted in his word. Now I told you just a little while ago that this book was written during the time of the exile. Think of what the first readers of Kings would have thought as they read this passage, right? They were under a curse as well, right? They had seen Babylon come and decimate and destroy Jerusalem. And yet to see what Elisha does, to remember what God does through Elisha, how they needed to hear this truth, right? That God is a God of grace. If they would trust in him, right? God would come and would bring new life to their situation that was under the curse of death. That there is hope for the hopeless. That there is, no matter what you've done in the past, there is grace to be found in God and in his word. If you cry out to him, if you cry out to him for help in faith, right, there is life, there is blessing, there is grace. And if that's true in the old covenant, how much more is it true on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, who is a prophet even greater than Elisha? This passage calls us to trust in God's word of grace revealed most fully through his son, Jesus, the eternal word of God, his word brings life out of death. What does Jesus say to us in the Gospel of John? He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says, the water that, that I give you will be a well of water springing up to eternal life. This story here in 2 Kings chapter 2 is a, a foretaste of what God would, would ultimately and graciously do for sinners through the incarnation and the sinless life and the undeserved death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reign of Jesus even now, one day the Lord Jesus will return and he will set all things right. He will remove the curse in every way. He will bring in a new heavens and a new earth and there will be no more curse. And we have here a little foretaste of that glorious day. As we see these waters healed, as we see the curse of Jericho removed, we see the Lord pointing us to our Savior, to that day when the curse will be fully and finally removed for all time. The Lord's word is a word of grace to be trusted in. But finally, in this passage, we hear that God's word is a word of judgment to be feared. You see, eventually, Elisha leaves Jericho. He heads to Samaria by way of Mount Carmel. But to go there, he had to pass alongside of Bethel. And here we have one of the most controversial stories in all the Bible. As Elisha is going up by the road that lay along Bethel, some small boys come out of the town behind him and they mock him. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Elisha turns around. He sees them. He hears them. And the text tells us that he curses them and that two female bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of the youth. And then he just completes his journey to Samaria. What's going on here? Right, what, maybe you read this story and thought, what in the world is going on here? Well, let me tell you what's not going on here. Right, this isn't a case of just some, some kids who are outside playing innocently. And, and like kids might do, they see somebody who's follically challenged and they sort of mock him and make fun of him. Ah, you're a baldy. Like, ah, keep on walking. All right? And this guy was, you know, really self-conscious about his bald head, right? And, and he takes it personally and, and he's sort of a mean guy. And so he, he kind of releases his two pit bears that he's holding in his hand out and they kill him, right? No, that's not what's going on here in this text. Not at all. Look at the text. Where are we? We're in Bethel. We're in Bethel. Yes, it's the city where Abraham built his second altar. Yes, it's the city where God gave his covenant promises to Jacob and Genesis. But it's also the place where for the last 80 years, Israelites have been worshiping Jeroboam's golden calves. It's the center, the epicenter of Israel's rejection of God's word. And evidently, the parents of Bethel had been really good at discipling their children. You see, their son's ridicule of Elisha mimics their own rejection of the prophetic word of God. These boys are likely between the ages of 10 and 12, and and it's clear that this is a large mob who are intentionally, purposely coming out of the city to where Elisha was, to mock the prophet of God, to threaten the prophet of God. Notice the little words at the end of verse 24, of the boys, 42 of the boys. What that tells us is that if 42 of of them died, there were a lot more than 42, right? Elisha here is a younger man. Uh, We know he's going to live another 50 years or so. So he was either, you know, prematurely balding or perhaps he had shaved his hair mourning for Elisha. Ralph Davis points out that travelers in this day would have traveled with their head covered. So these boys would have known that he was bald, that his hair was was either no longer there or that it had been shaved. They would have used that jeer, that mocking intentionally, Naming him a bald man, highlighting, you remember, what was different between Elisha and Elijah. Chapter one tells us Elijah was a hairy man. Here they are intentionally pointing out, you're a bald man, right? You you have no hair. You're nothing like Elijah, right? You can't be his successor. And what are they telling him over and over again? Go on up, go on up. Either either go on up just like Elijah, a sin, just we wish you were dead. Or they're saying, go on up. You notice that the text says he was going up by the way of Bethel. Just keep on going. Just pass by our town. We don't want you here. We don't want your word here. We don't want you to come and tell us anything. Either way, what we have here is an, an intentional, a purposeful, malicious contempt of the messenger of God. But to disrespect and to mock the messenger of God is to disrespect and mock the message of God and the God of the message. Elijah, when it says that he curses him, it doesn't mean he cussed him out, right? Because he was personally offended. No, he pronounces a curse upon them. Notice it says, in the name of Yahweh, for the sake of the honor of the Lord. And he's not the one who releases the bears. It's God who sends the bears. God fulfills the curse and sends forth those bears. Brothers and sisters, these are covenant bears. These are covenant bears who are sent by the word and the authority of God to fulfill the promise that God made all the way back in Leviticus 22, that if you reject the word of God over and over and over again, he says in Leviticus 26, if you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will let loose among you the beast of the field, which will bereave you of your children. That passage from Leviticus 26 is coming to pass here. In 2 Kings 2, the covenant God of Israel is fulfilling his word, his word of judgment to curse those who reject his word, no matter their age, no matter their lineage. Our God is a consuming fire and he will not be mocked. At some point, if we reject the word of God, at some point, our unrepentant sins will find us out. Again, think of the first readers of the book of Kings. They had been mauled by Nebuchadnezzar. When they saw what happened to these 42 boys and their parents bereaved of their children, they knew that what had happened to these boys had happened to all of Israel. It happened to all of Judah. And as we know, it would happen again in 70 AD when Israel rejects Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. This passage is telling us that God's word is a word of judgment to be feared. But here's the thing that we must see as we close Before God sent Roman armies to devastate Jerusalem, Jesus himself, the one greater than Elisha, he was mocked just like Elisha. He was hung on a cross. Yet instead of calling on the Lord or Elijah or bears to curse those who were crucifying him, what did Jesus do? He prayed that God would forgive them. And he took God's curse upon himself. On the cross, he took God's curse upon himself in place of all those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world, all who would put their trust in him, so that all who believe the gospel have their mockery of God forgiven. They experience freedom from God's curse forever. You see, these two stories go together, both in the sense that they they show us here are the two ways you can respond to God's word. You can trust and believe God's word as they do in Jericho, or you can reject God's word and go on rejecting God's word like they do in Bethel. And here the author of Kings is telling us that these are our two choices. If we refuse to heed God's word of wisdom and grace, then on the last day, we know from all the scripture that is revealed to us, we know that we will hear God's word of judgment and curse, the son of God who came to atone for sin, to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. On that last day, Jesus Christ will come in holy vengeance, fiercer than any covenant bearer could ever have thought about coming. And all who mock his messengers, all who mock his message, all who mock him and how he has revealed himself to us in his word, all who mock his wisdom and his grace and his judgment will be under God's wrath and curse eternally. God's word is a word of judgment to be feared, to be reverenced. And if you do fear it, if you do reverence it, then I plead with you to look to Jesus Christ in faith, to trust in him who sent his son to bear the dreadful curse for us, to endure God's judgment for sinners. And when you trust in him, know that like the people in the city of Jericho, you will live. You will be free from the curse. You will move from death to life. You will know his grace. And by his grace, you will walk according to his word of wisdom in the way of life forevermore. Brothers and sisters, God's word is wisdom. God's word is grace. God's word is judgment if we refuse to heed his wisdom and his grace. And so I plead with all of us, even as we saw from Hebrews 3 this morning, All of us must take heed to this word set forth in 2 Kings 2 so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but that we will look to Christ. We will reverence our God. We will trust in his wisdom, following his word, trusting in his grace. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us the scriptures, that we might know you better, that we might walk in the ways that you would have us to walk. Lord, would you give to us a holy reverence and give to us, O oh Lord, a heart of gratitude as we see what Jesus has done to remove the curse? O oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you, O oh Lord, that you lead us in the way everlasting. Come, we pray, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.